0: Welcome to Which Decade is Tots of Pop? Season 3, Episode 4. Yes, we are finally all back in the same place. Once again, it's been delayed for far too long. I do apologise. Life stuff got in the way. I think the life stuff that's been getting in the way for some of us is somewhat in abeyance now. So I am fairly confident we're going to start rolling these out with the frequency that we did before all this uh, kicked off. So I'm joined by Nick Parkhouse. Hi, Nick. Hello. And by DJ Trev. Hi, Trev. Hello there. We have this time, thanks to our magic randomizer, all the sevens. So we have a year suffix of seven. We have a chart position of seven. Means that we will be looking at records that are number seven of the charts on January the 10th. In 1967, 1977, all the way through to 2017. Playlists, if you subscribe to our Patreon, you get the full track embedded in the episode. For everyone else, you'll need playlists. So for YouTube, tinyurl.com forward slash which decade 34Y. For Spotify, which decade 34S. For the extracts and bonus bits, which decade 34E. And just before we kick off with the first tune, just say Patreon subscribers will know this, but the three of us did some Patreon-only content where we talked about our 10 favourite top 10 hits of 2023. Um, Really pleased with what we came up with because, as you'd expect, we were really diverse in the tunes that we picked. But I have a question for you. And I will answer the question at the end of the episode. There was only one hit from 2023 that all three of us mentioned in our top 10s of the year. What song do you think that might be? I will tell you later. But for now, let us start with
1: The 60s. The angry This is What Would
0: I Be by Val Dunican. It was the, the fifth of 12 top 40 hits they had between 1964 and 1973, Sometimes and it peaked I at number two making it his highest charting hit. It was only kept off the top by Tom Jones with Green Green Grass of Home. What Would I Be was written by Jackie Trent. She had already topped the charts in 1965 with Where Are You Now, Love? And together with her husband, Tony Hatch, Jackie Trent later co-wrote the theme tune from Neighbours. Val Dunican never had a number one single, but he did have a number one album. And this album knocked the Beatles' *Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band off the top of the charts in the final week of 1967. That album's name was Val Dunican Rocks, but gently. And he was last seen in the album chart as recently as 2019.
1: Uh, welcome to Lav as uh, one of my members of my family used to call him. Um <laughs> So I don't really associate Val Dunican with having a hit, I'll be honest. I don't associate him as like a chart hit machine, which obviously he was for years. But to me, like my brain tells me like this sort of Daniel O'Donnell type that I think I remember him like a lot of people will sort of sitting in in a rocking chair singing Paddy McGinty's Goat and Delaney's Donkey and, and all that kind of stuff on a like Saturday tea time just before or after Blankety Blank so in many ways you know I know that Elaine Page is a massive global star but it's just a bit in the two Ronnies that you had to sit through for people of a certain age in the late 70s and early 80s and I, I feel a bit like that about Val Dunican the most obvious thing to say about this is it, it feels about 10 years out of time that it was a hit in 1967 but it sounds like to me at least it sounds like an Elvis album track sounds like something from the 50s I mean he's very nicely performed and what have you and and uh, it's a funny one because the chorus is quite interesting. It's quite minor key. It gets a little bit dark and suspicious. And this is going to sound like an absolutely ridiculous thing to say, Johnny Cash, but the chorus is kind of got a really kind of, you know, like interesting thing. And then it goes back to the verse, which is just tinkly fifties rubbish. It's a little bit of a shame that there's a, a decent song hiding in there somewhere, I think, but, destroyed by some very kind of slightly twee production i mean i I suppose you know if you're getting 19 million viewers every saturday night to your tv show that's going to help bump your song up the charts isn't it which in what was approaching the summer of love can be surely the only reason that this is in the top 40 so it hasn't really encouraged me to go searching out more valdunican but by the same token, when I when I saw the name come up, it's nowhere near as terrible and slightly more interesting than I thought it was going to be. But then that's maybe a Jackie Trent who wrote some great songs, obviously, for Petula Clark and what have you. So, yeah, I think if you told me it came out in 1957, I'd have believed you. I think it's maybe my main issue with it.
0: Lav Nacky Nude. Bal spelt backwards. I've worked it out.
1: My sister used to call him Lav I think. My sister and I used to do a lot
0: of backwards names. Uh, my name is
2: Leakim Noznikta. Right then, Rovet, what do you make of it? Uh, I think what Nick says about the chorus, that's the most interesting part of this song. But I, I like the song overall. There is something about the melody at the chorus where it doesn't go sort of up the scale as I was expecting it to. Uh, On the first time I heard it, as I was writing this, I'm pretty sure that was the first time I heard it. I was expecting it to go high, and then it sort of goes low or maybe not quite as high as I was expecting. And that means that it's not quite as joyous as you would expect from, you know, the theme of the song. And it almost sounds like a lament. What Nick said about Johnny Cash, that was like a light bulb moment when you said that. I was like, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's what that is. That weird, it does sound slightly bleak. And it's, you know, it's a joyous song. I know that there's a lot of thought in the musical world that says when a melody doesn't follow what your brain expects it to happen, but it's not jarring, that's like the dream tune. If it surprises you, you'll find it catchy. And I mean, I'm not sure that it is massively catchy, but I really find it pleasant. I think it's got the 60s nostalgia that, we desperately crave in this podcast. And I think his croonerisms are just the right side of whimsy without being naff. I think when I saw Valdunic I was expecting something a bit naff. And I don't think it, this is. I think it's smooth, but not to the point of being beige. And I do think it's the slightly sombre tone that saves it from being cheesy and kitsch. And it was cheesy and kitsch that I was expecting of Valdunic. I don't think it's something I'm going to rush out and buy. I haven't bought it yet. But I also think it's the type of thing in a couple of years time, this might come on the radio and I'd be like, oh, yeah, nice. I'm happy to have heard it and I think I'll be happy to hear it again in the future. Mm. Well, Val
0: very much representing the section of the charts that were still seen as parents music. There was a phrase in popular circulation in the 60s, the generation gap. And there was this kind of friction going on in the charts speed, music for the kids and music for the mums and dads. So all the pop kids would have loathed Val Dunican on principle precisely because he wasn't the Stones or the Kinks or the Who. And you can see this in the charts for this particular week in 1967. So on one hand, you've got Tom Jones at number one, the Seekers at number two, Cliff Richard at number nine, Val Dunican, and then Jim Reeves at 17. But at the same time, in the same top 20, you've got the Who, the Kinks, the Small Faces and the Trogs. And yeah, this war continued. So Val Dunican rocks, not but gently knock Sergeant Peppers off number one. On the singles chart, the Beatles run of number ones was ended by Engelbert Humperdinck, who left Strawberry Fields forever, stuck at number two. And this situation continued well into the 70s. I was looking at the top 50 for this week, exactly 50 years ago in 1974. 50 years ago this week, Perry Como had three songs in the top 50. And Val Doonican is actually frequently compared to Perry Como. Also, Val Doonican, he emerged already middle-aged. He didn't release his first single until 1963, when he was already 36 years old. And that was due to him being talent spotted by none other than Anthony Newley, of all people. So we never knew him as a young man. He was in his native Ireland in his youth. He was just a jobbing muso who played the bars and didn't achieve any notable success. Yeah, I remember him being on the TV all the time. Saturday evening, light entertainment spot in the rocking chair. I'd forgotten about the other side of him. I remember the Perry Como style ballads. I'd forgotten the Irish novelty songs where he actually slips into an Irish brogue. And yeah, there's a formula to the title because you've got O'Rafferty's motor car, Delaney's donkey, Hattie McGinty's goat. Get what he's doing there. Of all the hits, the one I do have affection for is his last top 20 hit from December 1971. It's called Morning. And I remember it very well. And it was really nice hearing that again as for this one yeah judged on its own terms I think this is a decent piece of work I'm I'm the same as you guys I was expecting something really naff and it's not I think it's got a similar rhythm to do you know the way to San Jose I don't know if that's bossa nova. I try to work it out I'm not sure but for me that makes it definitely a 60s tune not a 50s tune And lyrically, it's very much parents' music, because the song is all about the trials and tribulations of a long-term marriage. It acknowledges that there can be anger and tears along the way, even though love will ultimately prevail. And I'm sure there were plenty of people of my parents' generation who could relate to that. The vocals, I would say, are pleasingly mellifluous. And I think the song as a whole feels kind of comforting and reassuring. And that was what Dunican was essentially all about.
1: It's a nice cup of Horlicks, isn't it? This song. Exactly. And sometimes a nice cup of Horlicks really hits the spot. Totally. doesn't it always have to be Jaeger Bombs. There's a drinks concept for you Jaeger Bombs and Horlicks. Mm. There are Jaeger Bombs coming in this episode, I feel.
0: <laughs> <laughs> there most definitely are. Not sure they're coming with the next track, though, as we proceed to. It won't be easy, you'll think it's strange. When this is Julie Covington with Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. It was the first of just three top 20 hits that she had between 76 and 77. Two solo, one as part of a quartet. It was her only chart topper. spent a single week at number one. And I barely need to tell you this, but obviously it was part of the soundtrack of Avita as written by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber. It's been a hit several times over since then, so in descending order of chart peak, number three for Madonna in 1996, number five for The Shadows in 1978, number 30 for The Mike Flowers Pops in 1996, in the same week that Madonna peaked at number three, and number 53 for Sinead O'Connor in
2: 1992. This has got a date when we've actually written this podcast, because I've written here... The other day on New Year's Day, (laughs) Radio 2, now we've missed out six months. We've just come to the end of the longest January in history, uh, and I can barely remember New Year's Day. But nevertheless... Radio Two on New Year's Day did a top forty of Madonna songs as voted for listeners. It was really well produced, so it was excellently presented by my very very good friend Scott Mills, who regular listeners will know, has had the privilege to DJ with me on the same lineup four times. Obviously, because Scott's not as good as me, he has to go on after uh, when everyone's you know all their attention spans gone. But the chart was Madonna's biggest songs, and the Madonna version of this only got to 25 in Madonna's top 40, which I think sort of tells a tale about this song. I don't think there's anything wrong with the song, but I've not seen the play, the film, or the book. So I've got no context. Like a lot of the time with musical numbers, without context, I just think you've got a kind of drippy song that's slightly confusing. Music's subjective, and unfortunately, this song has never made me want to watch the film or the play, or read the book. Even Wikipedia describing the album that this is from as a concept piece isn't enough to change. And I love a concept album. So I'm sure lots of people love this. But for me, I don't get it. I don't know what she's on about. For a decent comparison, there's a song that I... love in context but without the context i absolutely hate on the streets album a grand don't come for free he does a song called dry your eyes mate which on the album is just a masterpiece on its own i'm going to use a word i've never used before so i'm hoping that i pronounce it right it's execrable it's awful it's appalling on its own but in the context of the album it's great and this could be in the context of the evita story yeah, great, but I don't know that story. The song doesn't make me want to know it. And so I'm just like, what are you on about, mate? So, yeah, it's it's all right, but I can't see this being anywhere but in the meh zone for me, I'm afraid.
1: And this is why we have a range of opinions, I think, here. So I can't stand the streets, but I absolutely adore the single Dry Your Eyes, (laughs) for a start. So... In the mid-70s, after the success of Jesus Christ Superstar, Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber looking to make a new musical. And and you've got to say, in any context, it's a very odd choice to decide you're going to go down the sort of Argentinian history route. So they made it as an album. This was sort of almost the last song. They couldn't really decide what to call it. They had loads of titles. They thought that putting the word Argentina in the title would put people off, which uh, Tim Rice admitted later was a mistake. I've had the great pleasure of meeting Tim Rice, interviewing Tim Rice. Not about this, sadly, although it's probably is Lion King songs, notwithstanding one of his most famous. They couldn't find anybody to sing it for a start, and they saw Julie Covington in Rock Follies and offered her the job, but she sang it and then didn't really want to have anything else to do with it. She refused to perform it on top of the pops. So when it was on top of the pops, they just showed pictures of Ava Peron while they played the song over it, which is a little bit weird. I don't know whether you're right, Trevor. in the sense that I think that a brilliant song from a musical can be an independent hit in its own right. I don't think you necessarily have had to have seen Frozen to know that Let It Go is a banger. So surely when this came out and it got to number one, it got to number one on the strength of it as an individual record. Evita wasn't on in the West End at this time. They cast Elaine Page in the role and it opened in the West End after this had already been a hit. So I th- I disagree slightly. I do think that it got to the more on the strength of being, in my opinion, an absolute masterpiece of musical theatre. I mean, Evita has some great songs. Another Suitcase in Another Hall and um, Buenos there is Oh What a Circus, loads of great songs. And I think that you can tell when a song has entered the kind of the top tier of musical theatre by who then records it and when you've got people like Streisand has recorded this Shirley Bassey you know Madonna knifed climbed over people to get the role in the Alan Parker film so you know Patty Lapone, absolute legend of Broadway originated the role in America obviously Lane Page did it here Mike Flowers Pops smashed it up with a Macarena Sinead O'Connor version is lovely The Glee version, for God's sake, is quite nice. I love musical theatre. Won't surprise anybody to know, I don't think. And I would put this right up there. I don't know whether this is my absolute favourite version of this, but would put the song certainly in the top five probably greatest songs of musical theatre of all time. I just think it is dramatic and operatic and magnificent and I absolutely love it. And I have not stopped listening to it for weeks now.
2: I think there definitely are songs that, you know, exist outside of the musicals that they're from. For me, this isn't one of them. There's loads of songs on the Lion King. You know, some of those tunes are absolute monsters that work and you don't know the context from. Because it's someone saying, don't cry for me, Argentina. I do just find myself going, oh, I don't know what that means. So Elaine Page's musical show on Sunday on Radio 2 I bounce around if emotions are sometimes I go, Oh yeah, what an absolute banger. And then there's ones where I don't know the musical. I'm just like, so there there absolutely are tunes that work outside of the musical, but this isn't one for me. Yeah.
0: When this was a hit, I knew nothing about Eva Peron. I had no way of knowing anything about Eva Peron. So I could only listen to the song that was placed in front of me. And um, I did what I frequently used to do to big hits of the day. I was like 14 going on 15 when this was a hit. I had the most massive and all-consuming and obsessive crush on a boy at school, which I could not speak about to anybody. And I suffered. And one of the ways that I managed my suffering was by turning every other record that was a hit into somehow being about my unrequited love for this guy. And God knows how I did this, because I've looked at the lyrics again, but I managed to make Don't Cry For Me Argentina about my unrequited teenage crush. This takes some doing. I mean, there were other ones where I can see where I was coming from. Prime example, uh, Billy Ocean, Love Really Hurts Without You. It's got the lines, don't you know you're turning me on? I know that it's wrong, but I can't stop this pain inside me. That's an obvious one. But parsing, don't cry for me, Argentina. God knows what was going on.
1: You kept your promise. I kept my distance.
2: Oh, God, yeah. Surely. Oh, totally. His name wasn't Dave Argentina, was it? Because then it makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Nick,
0: that was actually one of the lines that I was able to sort of trace it won't be easy. You'll think it's strange when I try to explain how I feel. Oh, yeah, there are bits. Anyway. Right. Hello, Andrew Lloyd Webber. I don't like Andrew Lloyd Webber very much, and that's to put it mildly, but as much as I might affect to loathe him, there are some songs of his whose greatness is impossible to ignore. And this is one of them. For the record, the other. Lloyd Webber songs, which I genuinely love, and it's not a long list, are Take That Look Off Your Face, sung by Marty Webb, Another Suitcase, Another Hall from Barbara Dixon, also from the original Evita soundtrack, and Memory from Cats. And then for me, the song had a second lease of life when Madonna covered it in 1996. I went to see the film at the time as well. One of our friends at the time became obsessed with the Madonna version. He lived in a flat. I mean, he used to put it on in his flat really loud and he would fling open the doors to his balcony and he would stand there on his balcony, lip-syncing to all of Don't Cry For Be Argentina, as if he were Eva Peron, who in the film delivers the song from a balcony overlooking all of her people. Um, my friend had nothing to look at but Neighbours Gardens. I don't much get on with most of the Lloyd Webber School of Vocalists. So Elaine Page, Sarah Brightman, Michael Crawford, Michael Ball. Absolutely not my thing in terms of vocal style. But Julie Covington strikes me as, that was a cut above, I'm going to have to say. She didn't have that, what I perceive as a naff musical theatre vibe about her. She was cooler than that. I also liked her on the Rock Follies TV series that was running at the time. I think it went to two seasons. She was cast alongside Rula Lenska and Charlotte Cornwall as part of a struggling kind of proto-feminist, ballsy female rock bands called um, the Little Ladies. I suspect Rock has not worn well. But then, yeah, Julie Covington, she completely turned her back on blockbuster musical theater stardom to quote the song. And as for fortune and as for fame, she never invited them in. So in 1978, when it was eventually staged, the part went to Elaine page Julie Covington did actually express some regret for not taking that role on on stage, but her reason at the time was that she just didn't like Eva Peron as a person, so she didn't want to be placed in the situation of having to empathize with her on stage. And then she absolutely fell off the radar. Her last album was in 1978. Her last single was in 1982. She did a bit more theatre work, But then she just completely dropped from sight. She's still alive today, she's 77 years old, but I could not find any record of her appearing in public in any form. Since 1997, she is one of Pop's great recluses. But anyhow, I think it's probably Julie Covington that saves the song for me, just as Marty Webb saves Take That Look Off Your Face, and Barbara Dixon saves Another Suitcase. Lloyd Webber had originally offered the Evita soundtrack to Elkie Brooks, who turned him down. And that leaves me wondering, if Don't Cry For Me Argentina had been sung by Elkie Brooks, who's not one of my favourite singers, would I have loved it so much? Because I truly adore this.
1: I don't like Andrew Webber either, just for the record. But one of the things that I've learned as I've got older is that all those old musicals that have been around for years, there's a reason that they've been in the West End for 30 years, and that is generally because they're really good. I never went to see Les Miserables and his orchestra for years because I just I can't. Be. And then when you see it, you're like, no, this is amazing. So there is a reason that these musicals have endured Phantom and Cats and stuff. And that's because people love them. Um, the music and you know, the songs in them are great.
0: We also have to mention, I suppose, Oh What a Circus by David Essex, which was a hit a little while later from the same soundtrack because it's the same tune and it's strong enough tune to be interpreted in a completely different way
1: and that's the thing to remember with evita also is that evita is is not a musical in that they do a bit of acting and they break into song it's an opera essentially everything is sung in you know, literally from start to finish, everything in his music, so.
0: Was there a song added to the Madonna version in the movie that hadn't been in the original called, this is such a Madonna song title, You Must Love Me?
1: I adore You Must Love Me. And again, written by Tim Rice and Andrew Lloyd Webber, it was added because to qualify for an Academy Award, it's got to be an original song. So they added an original song for it, I guess, in order to Get and win, I think The Academy Award for Best Original Song Because they couldn't have won it for a song that you've written 25 years ago
0: Oh wow, did not know that
1: It's why it's why Rocket Man has I'm Gonna Love You, whatever it's called It's a new original song, also won the Oscar It's why stuff like that, they always add one brand new song to it
0: I wonder whether we'll all feel the same way about the next track I kind of think we will I think we're all going to feel the same way about the next track Which is from... This is Sometimes by Erasure. It was the first of 29 top 20 hits that Erasure had from 1986 to 2005. Peaked at number two, kept off the top by Europe and the final countdown... This was actually their fourth single, but the first three singles hadn't even made the top 50. They had one more number two in 1988 with Stop from the Crackers International EP. And finally, their only number one in 1992 with the Abaresque EP. If you sat me down
1: and said to me, name some of your favourite musical artists, right? I would sit there and I feel this has come up in previous episodes. I'd name a lot of people before I got to Erasure. I think. And then I heard this. So I started to Erasure and I think I love Erasure. I love everything Erasure have ever done. They had an incredible run of about 10 years where every single they released was an absolute banger from the mid 80s to the well at least the mid 90s and not beyond so they're a really funny one for me because if you said name a really amazing electro pop duo from the britain from the 80s that you love i'd be like well the pet shop boys and and i never get to erasure but i absolutely love erasure so listening to this again what i love about it is the production on it is absolutely magnificent there is so many Little sub melodies going on and little motifs, little tiny little musical motifs all the way through it that kind of add up to a lot more than the some of their individual parts. There's a tambourine in the chorus, which you probably never heard in your life before, but I heard it for the first time, and it's got these tiny little six- or eight-note keyboard riffs in it, just in between verses, between the bridge, in the verse to the chorus and stuff that, that you instinctively know. But then when you try and break it down, it's just incredibly crafted levels of just beautiful melodies and production and stuff. It's absolutely Timeless as well. You know, a lot of 80s stuff sounds like it came in out in the eighties. I'm not sure this does. I think this is absolutely timeless. You know, I love it, and yet it's. You know, I don't know whether it'd make the top ten of my favourite Erasure songs. I know that a little respect is having a massive. The kids have got hold of that somehow on TikTok or on social something. A little respect is massive currently with the Gen Zs. So yes, lucky enough to see Erasure live. They were fantastic. I've loved everything that they've done. Love this. An absolute classic.
2: So this is a podcast about pop. I think it's fair to say that with this tune, the pop sensibility has just stepped up several gears from where we've been. There aren't many tunes that I can picture myself sort of hearing before I started buying records. Once I started buying records, you know, the first time I heard renegade master the first time i heard born slippy the first time i heard there's millions of tunes that i go oh yeah well this must have been on the cusp i think if i'd have heard this two weeks later i would have started buying tunes i was in the richard dunn sports center in bradford that had get this three slides now this was at a time when you still had to go through those weird colored uh foot Baths before you could go into the pool, and if you fell into it, you'd go blind. Three slides was unprecedented. But if the Richard Dunn Sports Centre represented the pinnacle of leisure architecture in the late 70s, which it absolutely did, by the time I was there, even then, they'd added slides, they'd done stuff, the shine was starting to come off, it was starting to tarnish a little bit. I cut my foot on a chip tile, it was a bit knackered. Unfortunately, the purple foot bath. Could have killed off the black death, so certainly killed off whatever I could have caught. But the shine was coming off the Richard Dunn Sports Centre, and this tune came on, and Erasure put the shine back on my day. I was having a miserable day. It, I was awkward, yeah, sunken chest, and all the kids were taller than me. It was a school trip, and all the good-looking girls didn't want to hang around with me because I was pasty and oh, and then and this tune came on, and it was all fine because what an. Absolute wonderful piece of just shiny pop music. I don't think you could call this anything other than pop. You could, yeah, synth pop, but what is this? This is just pop. It's denim, it's turned up denim. You've got to be wearing a white t shirt to be singing this, and you could dance to this. And if you picture the second half of the 1980s and what a pop star should look like, it's surely what he actually looks like in the video dancing around on top of the building around is like dancing some washing lines and stuff like that it's just amazing the only the only problem i've got with this is that in the video and what nick said about the layers of the music this is a synth masterpiece for some reason one of the titans of synth pop is strumming a guitar in the video and i mean i can't hear a guitar in the mix at all i might have missed it You know, my ears aren't what they used to be. But that's the only thing. Other than that, this is just perfect. I'm on side with this song. And I hope you've got that from what I've just said, because I was right back when this came on, I was right back in the Richard Dunn Sports Centre and it made my day better then. And it makes my day better every time I hear it now. Yeah,
0: this is going exactly the way I thought it was going to go, which is good news. Yeah. Second appearance on this podcast for Vince Clark, because we had him in season two as part of Yazoo when Don't Go came up. After Yazoo split, I kept track of what Vince Clark was up to because I really liked him. So I went out straight away. I bought the single he did with Fergal Sharkey in December 83. They would call themselves The Assembly. Uh, They had a big hit with Never, Never. Loved that. Then he put out a single with Paul Quinn, didn't sharp, called One Day. I was one of the few people who bought that. And then as soon as Erasure got together, I followed them right from the start. I'd already bought their first three flop singles. And when I say flop, one of them only peaked at number 100. So when sometimes finally gave them their first proper hit, I was absolutely delighted. Up until that point, I'd not seen them. I'd only heard them, and my first thought on hearing them was that Andy Bell sounded remarkably similar to Alison Moyet. I thought, oh, I see what he's done here. He's recruited someone as similar-sounding to Alison Moyet as he could find. But once I got to see Andy Bell perform on TV and on video, rather than just hearing record, that comparison quickly faded to nothing. This song is inextricably linked to the first club gig I ever did solo as a DJ in Nottingham in December 1986, the Thursday before Christmas. And um, I bluffed my way into the gig. I've made out, i would had all this experience and I really didn't. Uh, But somehow the bluffing worked. It was really well attended. Big dance floor, great first club gig to have. And sometimes was one of the biggest hits of the night. And literally, whenever I think about sometimes, I can see myself back in that DJ booth looking out over that dance floor absolutely linked in my mind. There were, because I carried on DJing mainly lesbian and gay nights for the rest of the 80s, and there were the three big gay pop duos of the mid to late 80s. There was the Communards, the Pet Shop Boys, and Erasure. The Communards, out and proud and political, with a capital P, political. The Pet Shop Boys, closeted and conceptual, sometimes, small p, political, whereas Erasia were just pop, if we can say, just pop. So by comparison with the Cominards and the Pet Shop Boys, Erasia didn't get the same love at the same time from my gay friends, but they were still university-liked if not quite revered in the same way. I think it kind of goes back to what Nick was saying. It reminds me of a quote that someone from the Beautiful South made about themselves, because the Beautiful South's greatest hits collection was absolutely massive hit in the album charts. It hung around for donkey's years. And was going, really? Beautiful South, why? And the member of the Beautiful South said, basically, we're everybody's second favorite group. And I think that's what it was with Erasure. There weren't many people who would have Erasure as their favourite group, but everybody liked them a lot. So they almost kind of went under the radar. I think they're more revered now in a way that they were then. I always played every single new Common Art and Pet Shop Boys single at my DJ nights, but I was a good deal more selective about Erasure. The biggest two after sometimes for me were Victim of Love and Stop. Weirdly, I slept on a little respect. That is weird. I was DJing a lesbian and gay night every week when A Little Respect was a hit and I didn't play it. The reason is I always bought the 12-inch. The 12-inch of A Little Respect is pigging awful. It bears no resemblance to the 7-inch version. And I thought, oh dear, a ranger have come out with a bit of a dud this time. I think we'll give this one a pass. What is curious about them, and I think Nick's alluded to this, they spent 20 full years having top 20 hits without ever significantly changing their sound. And that I think was down to Vince Clark's stubbornness, even though Andy Bell would have liked them to move with the times a bit more. And I know this because he told me so when I interviewed him in 2007, they got a new album just coming out. And he did actually express that frustration to me during a promotional interview. So I think it was a factor. Lyrically, it's an odd one because the verses are all about jumping into bed with someone, having big sexy time with them. But the chorus alludes to pain, it alludes to a broken heart. I think maybe this song is about having rebound sex after a bad breakup. But whatever, it is one of my absolute favorite erasure singles. I'm delighted it's here.
1: It is both brilliant that A Little respect has found another audience, but also very annoying that it's been one of my top five singles of all time since before these people were born.
2: Why is that annoying? I'm annoyed that other people are getting into the oh, it's got to be your little thing. Nonsense. Don't be annoyed that people get into it. Be like, yeah. Nick, this is the most indie rock thing
1: I have ever heard you say. Oh, it's all right till the general public got into them. You've also got to remember it only hit number four in the charts. It wasn't even a monster hit. Um anyway, moving swiftly on. Do you like the history of sometimes in the top forty?
0: Oh, go for it.
1: There was no song with Sometimes in the title till the mid-70s. It's interesting. 25 years of the charts, nobody mentioned Sometimes until Sometimes When We Touch by Dan Hill was the first. What a lovely song that is. Big Beardy Dan Hill. Sometimes Love Just Ain't Enough, Patty Smith and Don Henley. Um, Sometimes It's a Bitch by Stevie Nicks. Sometimes Always by the Jesus and Mary Chain. Lots of just sometimes. Obviously, Erasure, James, Ash, Britney Spears, Tinted Out, Shelley Nelson, Brand New Heavies. And I, I think the only number one sometimes is U2's Sometimes You Can't Make It on Your Own.
0: Trev, do you have to play A Little Respect every single Saturday night without fail or else?
2: Uh, no, I've been playing A Little Respect since I started playing pop music early. So initially I was, like most DJs, I played dance music. That was what it was. And then I started playing pop music. And the way that 80s synth pop was made, it fits with dance music anyway. All the musical patterns are the same. And it was one of the first ones that, oh, you know what? I, I could just chuck in this. It is probably one of my most played songs. And the fact that I'm not bothered about that. The fact that I'm not going, you know, maybe it's time to give that a break in this same vein as human league. Don't you want me? It's not time to give that a break. Just listen to it. It's great. Sweet dreams. You're with me. It's great. If you don't like those songs, you're probably not going to like me as a pop DJ. You probably don't like pop. It's a useful yardstick record for me. If I need to rescue a dance floor, a little
0: respect will generally do oh, it. Yeah. If I play a little respect and it doesn't rescue the dance floor, I know, that nothing I play for the rest of the night is going to get this miserable lot moving. And it's almost, I can relax. If I play a little respect and nobody dances, I relax.
2: It's like, yeah, this is just not going to happen tonight. Do you play any other erasure? Occasionally I play stop. I'll be honest with you, I do think something that makes me not play as much erasure as I probably would, is they often have these sort of sweepy, dreamy intros rather than starting on a beat or starting on a a riff. And I'm a DJ who mixes most things. Uh, You know, I don't often just play a track from the start. As you were saying that, I was thinking, do you know what? Maybe I should crack on and do a few re-edits of Erasure so that I can get them mixable and playing Because it's well made and it's stuff that people know, people like dancing to a little respect. Whereas loads of other tunes like this, you know, you could play this at 7.30, couldn't you? It's nice. It doesn't have to be dance floor, is what I mean.
0: Yeah, the other big two, after I stopped DJing, that were massive in our local gay club on a Saturday night, Take a Chance on Me and Love to Hate You. Love to Hate You is right up there with me. Even quotes from I Will Survive in the middle of it. If there's one other erasure record I ought to add to my playlists, It's probably Love to Hate You.
1: A lot of that stuff is not really for a club, is it? It's a great pop record for radio, but you wouldn't play drama or Blue Savannah or chorus, would you, in a club, I don't suppose.
0: It's true, actually. That's probably another reason why I was more selective. The circus. (laughs) You're really not going to play that. Okay, time for... This is The Prodigy with Breathe. It was the 11th of 17 top 20 hits that The Prodigy had between 1991 and 2009. And it was the second of their two number ones. Spent two weeks at the top. And it also went to number one in seven other European countries. Breathe is also The Prodigy's most streamed track on Spotify with 153
2: million plays. I like the Prodigy a lot. Uh, I've got most of their albums, Wishlist fans. I've not got the most recent one. And I've seen them live loads of times. I also like Experimental Dance and I like the line between dance music and rock, which is where this sits. But the honest truth about this tune is I'm not actually that bothered about this type of stuff from the Prodigy. I think it's really good. I think it's well made. I think Keith had invented A really iconic late 90s persona. I think it's as recognisable as Jack Sparrow or Freddy Krueger. And I think the progression of sound that the Prodigy embodied is absolutely huge, massively influential. I think it's close to genius. I think the acts that they influenced and continue to inspire are outstanding. They're right up my street. Bands like CrossFaith, The and Nova Twins, uh, Softplay, Electric Callboy and Shikari. There's so many people that they influenced. And this era of the Prodigy doesn't leave me cold, but it is just there is other stuff by the Prodigy that I prefer much more. This album, it's a very important album, but it's my fifth favourite of the Prodigies. I think the video is great. The imagery is superb. And I do think it's good music, but I think it's more important than it's something that I would listen to by choice. I want the synths and the ravey bits. I want it a bit more euphoric. And as far as pop music goes, it's a pop music podcast. This is at the heavy end of pop. I think it's this stuff that makes the Prodigy a punk band. I think it's this stuff that makes the Prodigy so important. If they just carried on knocking out the rave, which is what I wanted them to do, they wouldn't be as important as they were. And they're not here to do what I want. A lot of the time, the Prodigy are here to do what anybody wants. When their fans are crying out for more ravey stuff, They'll come back with a rock album. Likewise, they'll go the other way and they'll drop stuff that people aren't expecting. And I think that's great artistically. It does mean that I'll do a long ramble like this about a tune that I think is really great but isn't my favourite of this band. And I think the band are one of my favourites. I didn't go off them when it was cool to go off them. And a lot of people will tell you, oh, I never went off the Prodigy. And a load of people did when they got really massive, when they started being in the top 10 all the time. And it was when they did... Firestarter, and people are like, what the hell that they got their credibility back. It's a great song. It's great piece of music. I think it's probably one of the most influential, important tunes that we've actually had because I think the prodigy are that important and influential, but yeah, it's it's still not one of my favorite songs by the band. You see, unlike the eighties, this is
0: not already, this is not going the way I thought it was going to go. I thought that was going to be unqualified 10 out of 10 from you, Trev. Nick, I have a hunch I know which way you're going to go on this, but I might be wrong again.
1: As a sweeping generalisation, the Prodigy I don't think of for me, I actually didn't mind the Charlie Says one. It was okay, because I quite liked The Shaman at that point, and it felt like a sort of similar type thing. And then Britpop came along, and obviously, I think, as I've said on the podcast, but it just changed everything for me. I went out one day, I bought a Shine album and different class by Pulp, and that was it. From that point, it was just Britpop all the way. And... I mean, it sounds obvious to say now that Prodigy were, at least in this era, also a pop band. There's enough guitar, I think, on this that they, to me, fall into that sort of Chemical Brothers. I don't know what genre is, it, sort of the fringes of dance, pop, whatever you want to call it. And I didn't really like it at the time. I mean, to me, Breathe just sounds like a knockoff of Firestarter. I mean, I can't discern enough of a difference between those two songs. They just, to me, sound like a lot of the riffs and stuff of each other. And I think Firestarter is probably a, if not better, more interesting song than Breathe is. So I wasn't a massive fan at the time. And then I thought, well, look, you know why not so i listened to the fat of the land again the other day well i say again i n- never listened to it at the time because i didn't buy it so i thought well i listen to it because maybe i like it maybe it's guitar enough and nostalgic enough and 30 odd years ago enough that i'd enjoy it And i didn't really enjoy it I, I listened to about two-thirds of it and it was just i mean respectfully if you think reed sounds like firestarter the rest of the fat of the land just sounds like that also in my opinion and i just got a little bit bored with it The difference between Not Really My Cup of Tea and Rubbish, I think Trevor's right in terms of influence and longevity and and all those sorts of things. I don't think you can argue with the Prodigy's legacy at all, but not really for me. And even this song, even hearing it again, i probably like it slightly more than I did at the time, but not enough that it would make me voluntarily seek it out.
0: Yeah, you were saying about looking for the name of a genre that had rock elements and dance elements in it. I kind of think you can almost put the Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers, well, you definitely the Chemical Brothers, sort of the Prodigy into Big Beat because Big Beat had kind of hip hop bits and dance bits and rock bits all mashed together. I think that's probably where i peg them. I wouldn't peg them as Britpop, I must say. This is the second song in a row today that I've seen performed live. I think I mentioned this before, but I saw the Prodigy, at Nebworth in August 1996. They were second on the bill to Oasis, and they were so much better than Oasis. Um, but as fantastic as they were on that day, I've never really taken to the project. I've got to admit it. They were too ravey in the early days, and that was at a time when rave basically left me cold, although I have come around to a lot of it since then. And obviously, Out of Space is a total and utter classic. I tried to get into them round right about the time of the Music for the Jilty Generation album in 1994. I'd heard no good to me as a hit. I bought it in an attempt to make myself appreciate The Prodigy. It is the only physical release by The Prodigy I ever bought. I tried. It didn't succeed in converting me. And by the time that Firestarter and Breathe and Smack My Bitch Up came out, they just sounded too noisy for me. Like I couldn't hear any proper, what I would regard as proper, dance music dynamics in there. And and maybe that's the common link across all their stuff. It's too much rock and not enough roll. It's too much punk and not enough funk. It's just a bunch of nasty men shouting at me. And that isn't necessarily a bad thing, because the Sex Pistols were just a bunch of nasty men shouting at me. And I love the Sex Pistols, but there we have it. None of this is to say that Breathe is a bad record. It does what it does very well indeed. There's that basic Iggy and the Stooges type riff. You've got snarling Johnny Rotten type vocals. You've got clattering bait beats. You've got an inventive breakdown that avoids all the usual breakdown cliches, but it just doesn't move me. And I was expecting to have to apologise to Trevor at this stage, but it, uh, Trevor, you're more lukewarm than I thought you were going to be, so...
2: Prodigy Experience era, Prodigy is me, it's Charlie, it's Ravy, it's Piano. Yeah, Out of Space, even Jilted Generation, I thought it was good. I had some really good tunes on, but you could see where they were going. On there. Uh, you know, they had their law on there with ooh, was it PWEI they were on there with? Maybe. But yeah, I mean, I think what Nick says about it being Firestarter Part Two, I think if this had come before Firestarter, this would seem like the better record. Firestarter was groundbreaking. This is, you know, more of the same. But there's plenty of bands that have done that over 20 or 30 albums. And the prodigy have certainly they've revisited this sound, baby's got a temper. Yeah, it's more important than My Cup of Tea and The Prodigy have got so many tunes I love. I wish it had been another one. I'd rather just listen to actual metal and punk than sort of the dance equivalent.
0: There are two tunes that were shown on Top of the Pops during the 90s. And my poor long-suffering partner, Kevin, I used to make him watch Top of the Pops. And there were two tunes that left him utterly dumbfounded and both times made a comment along the lines of, well, that's it then, isn't it? That's just the end of music, isn't it? One of them was, I like to move it, move it by Real Real, the Mad Stuntman. The other one,
2: Firestarter, the Prodigy, he couldn't believe it was number one.
0: But I think that speaks well of Firestarter, actually.
2: Yeah, I mean, there were complaints. People were terrified the character that Keith created, you know, people were genuinely ringing up going, my kids are scared of that scary man dancing in a tunnel, which is, you know, sometimes I think you need a bit of that in pop music. There's not a lot of scary pop artists these days. And one of the things we complain about is, is, is it all starting to be a little bit beige? Where's the balls, essentially? And when I was saying about bands that they influenced, you know, I think there's a shout for them, influencing bands like Slipknot you know, who were at the much heavier end of things. And Prodigy weren't the first band to do it, but to go mainstream, linking dance music and rock, borderline metal, you know, that was pretty important. That was pretty interesting. It hadn't been done. There were bands who'd done it before, but not with any level of the success that the Prodigy had. Totally agree with you about the need for scary men on telly. Oh, there's plenty of scary men, just not scary in the
0: right way. Yeah. Well, you see... Keith Flint from The Prodigy, he is in the same bag as, for people of my generation, Alice Cooper was. Scary man off the telly, who actually later on was revealed to be a pussycat. Compare and contrast with Marilyn Manson, who was anything but a pussycat.
1: So you're saying that all George Ezra needs to do is pierce his tongue and run up and down a dark tunnel? It's not a bad idea. That's George Ezra's next album. James Arthur. Oh, God, I can picture that all too clearly. Right,
0: Let us proceed to... This is Cascada with Truly, Madly, Deeply, the second of five top 20 hits that they had between 2006 and 2009. It peaked at number four. Their highest charting hit was Evacuate the Dance Floor. That got to number one in 2009. Truly Madly Deeply was originally recorded by Savage Garden, and their version also reached number four back in
1: 1998. Before we started this podcast, if you'd said to me, what was the absolute nadir for pop music? I think, Mike, you've alluded to this before in the late 2010s when you fell out of love with it entirely. and uh, mm. I would have said... The early 90s, from about 1990 to about 1994, where I just lost interest. I couldn't find anything that I liked and so on and so forth. I think since we've started doing this podcast, I've revised my opinion. And I think that the nadir for pop music is, I would say, the mid-2000s. I didn't know that Cascada had done a cover of Savage Gardens Truly Madly Deeply until it turned up on the randomizer. I could genuinely say I don't think I've ever heard this before in my life. And it is exactly as you would expect a Cascada cover of Truly Madly Deeply to sound like. It sounds like it's been made for tuppence on a German Bon Tempe keyboard. I could be here for hours about this, honestly. So I love Savage Garden, absolutely love Savage Garden. Made two amazing albums. Had a bunch of great hits. The second album particularly, particular, I just think is brilliant. And then essentially broke up and disappeared. It is a factoid for him. My wife has shampooed Darren Hayes's poodles. <laughs> um, when she was working at an animal facility, and he was obviously he's Australian, he brought his poodles in for grooming. It sounds like a euphemism, doesn't it? But she has shampooed <laughs> Darren Hayes's poodles. Um, now, I have a love-hate relationship with Truly Madly Deep because I absolutely love Savage Garden's original Truly Madly Deep. But it again, so here's a can you love a song if you have a terribly negative experience for it because it was my first dance song at my first wedding. <gasps> so it's very hard to listen to it now. It's a shame because I love it and I do want to love it, but I can't love it anymore. It's one of the things I lost in the breakup was this song is disappeared from my life in some ways but i listened to it i've I've mellowed towards it again slightly which is good because i love it it's a beautiful song and then there's this i mean i don't really know where to start it's like you might as well have got the cheeky girls to do it you've talked before mike about these you know euro covers of well-known songs with a much higher bpm and it's essentially just one of them isn't it the whole point of truly madly deeply is that it's a ballad right it's a relationship ballad i want to stand with you on a mountain i want to with you in the sea and i want to lay like this it's a love song and i just don't think you can put banging mid-2000s production behind a love song and it just it's misses the point of it entirely you know if the venga boys had done you don't bring me flowers right it just doesn't work does it it's just like trev's going down that would work i don't know so I mean, I was astonished to find out that Cascada have had as many top 10 hits as Savage Garden did, which seems all sorts of wrong. So I don't want to go on a rant about it. I mean, it's just it is what it is. Right. It's a terrible, terrible dated mid 2000s disco version of a really lovely pop ballad. And in the words of Dragon's Den, I'm sorry, but I'm out.
2: In the subscriber-only Christmas bonus episode, I spoke passionately and at length about Bass Hunters' reimagining of Jingle Bells, which is entitled Jingle Bells Bass. In a nutshell, I took about 38 minutes to say that it's Ace. And nobody agreed with me, but, you know, that's a different story. But what I liked about that was that it took a song that had a sort of a completely different sort of structure and gave it a full base on treatment. And it was a bit of a joke and it was fun and it was lighthearted and I think a bit clever. What Cascade has done here is, I mean, I've written okay. I'm not, I'm not sure I feel it is okay, but it's completely generic. It's a Eurodance donk version of a lovely pop record but I think if you don't like this, I think you can legitimately say she has ruined this song. Whereas, you know, I don't think you could say, based on a ruined Jingle Bells, because Jingle Bells is a Christmas carol. That you know, you know what I mean? He just did something so different. This is, she's taken a pop record that already existed and tried to make it into another pop record that maybe shouldn't exist. What Traz did with Queen we take a song and make it into a different tune this is just the same song but faster and cheesier i mean maybe this is better if you've never heard the savage garden version I, in fact i would probably say this is much better if you've never heard the savage garden version because you've got nothing to go oh why 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 cascada now i think the why for Cascada is at this point, they were just knocking out any old crap whilst she still had a big name. Let's get a few more through the doors and get some sales. And I think Cascada did some good songs, but I don't think this is one of them. There are millions too many cheesy dance bangers of otherwise good songs that don't really need to exist uh, and don't really need a cheesy dance banging version anywhere near. It shouldn't have even been thought of. And this is like one of them. I clearly shouldn't have written down okay, because this is not okay. It doesn't move anything on. Um, It doesn't bring anything to the table. There's nothing clever about this whatsoever. And not everything needs to move things on and not everything needs to be progressive and clever. But... This is about as progressive as eating too many hot dogs and throwing up down the side of the waltzes. And I think that's the only place that this would sound good. I don't have a lot to say about this. What I feel about this record can be fairly
0: quickly summarised. But you need to know, my love for boshing Eurodance covers of unlikely rock songs basically knows no limit. I even wrote an article about all of this for The Guardian in 2010. I am more than happy with the concept of Cascada basically stomping all over Savage Garden's boring palabard, sorry, Nick, music is subjective. Just I don't get that Savage Garden version at all. I prefer this version by Cascada. It's not clever. It's not tasteful. It cannot be justified on any intellectual level, and yet I have the most. Massive sweet tooth for this kind of thing. And I can't give you any rational justification for it. I love the sheer dumb sacrilege of this it reminds me of a bit there was a punk band in the late 70s called the dickies and they used to do punk covers of rock classics so they took songs like the sound of silence and nights in white satin and they just stomped all over them did punk cover versions and maybe there's a connection between what they did and what cascada did as well all of them are done at like breakneck speed maybe i just like fun maybe it's as simple as that i find this fun Cascada, as I mentioned this on the results bulletin, Cascada are on tour again this year. They're a part of a Clubland package and they are performing along with Bass Hunter, Sash, Kelly Lorena, Darren Styles, Flip and Phil, Ultra B and in Manchester for one night only, the mighty Venga boys. Could we persuade them to do you don't bring me flowers? I think that would be magnificent. Trevor, I gather you tried for tickets and they've all sold out. So these are big venues.
2: Yeah, the gig that I want to go to because it's a night that I can do without missing work has mm. sold out. And I'm just not sure because it is a very full on fairground dance lineup, whether or not I'd actually enjoy it as much as in my mind, I think I would. I speak about basement. I think basement was really fun, uh, and I think Cascada in her moments, every time we touch, is sensational. Evacuate the dance floor it was a, a lovely tribute to Lady Gaga, but this, at the time, there were a lot of dicey dance covers around. I think Chan Wayne did because the night, that's one that leaps out at me and they never brought me any joy playing. And there's a load that have actually aged relatively well and you listen to them now and you go, oh yeah, but it's sort of a bit tongue in cheek. It's a bit ironic. I wonder if where we are at the moment with the annual deluge of stripped back piano, weepy cover versions of otherwise good records is in as many years time going to sound like this period of music sounds to me now, because some of them have aged. Well, like I say, a little bit novelty. Yeah. Tongue in cheek, irony. Most of them still crap. I think we've reached saturation at the moment with cover versions that have gone the other way. Instead of adding power and energy to them, they suck all the life out of them. And I honestly couldn't tell you which I prefer if I had to listen to either ultra cheesy dance covers or... Ultra stripped back, far too sincere piano ballad versions. I think probably I'd be choosing the Cascada
1: door, to be honest. Yeah,
0: me too. And you, Nick, I presume you go for the piano stripped back things, wouldn't you?
1: Of course, I would. I know other opinions are available, but I don't know how you can argue that this is a better version of Truly Madly Deeply. I find that. Impossible. I can't comprehend that at all.
2: Coming from a man who refuses to acknowledge the cars as a hit record, that that's a better version is... Well, who was it that said that music is subjective?
0: And I've heard this phrase somewhere. All I can say is I enjoy this version more than the Savage Garden version. Because I'm not emotionally invested in the Savage Garden version. With all due respect in it, I had no idea this had been your first dance at your wedding. That's just completely floored me. And I, I was like, I feel I need to tread gently here. But if a song that didn't move me in the first place gets vibed up like that, I'm just like, yeah, go for it. Stick a donk add a Bosch. now I can have fun to this.
1: I'm not saying I hate the Cascada version, but I'm just saying I like it less than a song that was played by Disastrous, as it turned out, First Wedding.
2: So we've mentioned Alice Cooper. Mm. Can we somehow subject Nick to the dance version of Alice Cooper Poison? Do you remember that? That was around this era, wasn't it? I didn't love that either. It absolutely was around this era. Loved it. Definitely check out Jan Wayne because the night. That's bad. I thought Infernal doing other oh, night is that was quite good. I quite enjoyed that, but they didn't really change that a right lot. Self control. Was it all runner who did Um Ordinary World? Duran Duran. Oh, don't know that one. I think this movement started with uh, Heaven by DJ Sammy. That I do think has aged all right. I I didn't get that. At the time, I thought that was appalling. But now I think it's cheesy and naff and crap and actually all right.
0: Vic, I've got to ask, what was the first dance at your second wedding?
1: I don't think we did one. I think we just skirted that entirely. You got to play a bit of music, you know, in like the registry office, you know, as you're coming in and out. And we just had film music. We had the Star Wars throne room music as everybody was leaving. Uh, Your Love is Lifting Me Higher and Higher, Jackie Wilson which was nice, so that sort of thing.
0: A couple of friends of mine got married at a registry office, and this was in the days of cassette boomboxes, and they had instructed me to bring a boombox into the registry office room because there were two Olita Adams songs that they wanted playing, one for when they walked up, one for when they walked down. So it was uh, Alita Adams' Get Here on the Way Up, Alita Adams' Rhythm of Life on the Walk Down, written with Tears for Fears. Midway through the ceremony, as they were signing the registry, I was sitting near the back of the room and all my friends turned around and they kind of gave me conspiratorial smiles and thumbs up. And they were going, ha, nice one, Mike. I was like, what? I'm not playing anything. What are you talking about? And then I realised that while the register was being signed, the register office were piping music into the room. And the song they were playing... At that moment was Engelbert Humperdinck, please release me. Let me go for I Don't Love You Anymore. And my friends thought I would do that as a prank. Oh I God. just thought, don't registry offices vet the content of their
1: playlists. That's like playing Staying Alive on Hospital Radio, isn't it? <laughs> but also we did have, and I think we're probably the only people in the history of humanity at their wedding to have Way Back Into Love by Hugh Grant from the film Music and Lyrics
2: film.
0: I don't remember the song. Trev, did you have a first dance?
2: I'm not married. Oh, you're not married? I get to hear about that all the time as well.
1: <laughs> Does on to do the wedding march? <laughs> wedding yeah. march, bass. Ah, uh, you commissioned Malcolm <laughs> the Bright Doctor to do a donk wedding march. Ho, ho, ho. Here <laughs> comes the bride. Base. <laughs> I mean, if you love it, Trev, you know, like you say, if you love it, you should put a donk on it. <laughs> <laughs> all
0: right. Here come this is 24k magic by bruno mars it was the 15th of 19 top 20s that bruno mars has had between 2010 and 2021 11 as a lead eight as a feature this one peaked at number five Bruno Mars has had five number ones that's three as a lead two as a feature 24k Magic was the title track of his third album which peaked at number three he hasn't released another solo album since then but there has been one more album where he was part of Silk Sonic with Anderson Pat This was his first single since Uptown Funk topped the chart almost two years earlier, and it was also his last
2: top five hit to date. When elders say modern pop music's rubbish, Bruno Mars is one of the names that I immediately say is the case for the defence of modern pop music. He always involves the right people. He's always got the best producers, he's got a great aesthetic, and I think he makes, for me, gloriously shiny pop. Bangers. This channel's Parliament, Funkadelic, Cameo, Africa bambata Rob Based DJ Easy Rock, uh, even bits of salt and pepper, and indeed Spinderella, who you might recall is not a fella. Um, and this, as soon as I heard it, first time I heard it, I was like, this is a hit record. Now, in the previous review, I said that Cascada wasn't moving things forward, but I also said not everything needs to. And I think this tune is a great example of that. Artistically, we are no further forward than we were three and a half minutes before this, we might be smiling, we might be dancing. I think in 20 years' time, we'll be listening to a lot of Bruno Mars's tunes. I already play Bruno Mars alongside artists like Michael Jackson, Prince Delight, uh, and I think he stands at the front of modern pop music alongside Taylor Swift, George Ezra and Calvin Harris as one of the big guns. I think this is a really good song.
1: He stands at the forefront of modern pop music on a big crate, so you can see him in fairness. I have seen him live. He's about three foot tall. So, yeah, I think I broadly agree with Trev on this. I prefer the more I don't know what you'd call it, the the, the more generic poppy stuff. I love Grenade and, um, you know, just the way you are and even Locked Out of Heaven, that sort of thing. The production on this owes a lot to some late 70s, early 80s stuff. I mean, I'm getting kind of love come down even Champagne King vibes from it, the message, Grandmaster Flash kind of thing. I and mean, the co writer of this, Brody Brown, is, is royalty. Co wrote Grenade, wrote I Forget You, CeeLo Green. He's won Grammys for Adele, 25, Silk Sonic, and for this. So, real good pedigree, if you like. It's not my favorite of his. I find it maybe even a little bit derivative for my liking. It's a little bit too obviously sounding like those records that it's influenced by for me but I do agree with Trevor I saw him live it's one of those gigs where you know you're in the presence of a proper star you know it's like seeing Gaga or uh, even Dua Lipa I would say these days you know you know you're in the company of a like an A-list act if you like so not my favorite of his but I do like most of what he does it's a great little pop song
0: yeah, I've seen Bruno Mars. I saw him in 2011 when he was touring his first album. And yeah, he was great. I have found the review that I wrote at the time for the local paper. I'm not going to quote you bits because I'm feeling lazy. And um, there's no point paraphrasing now what I said then. So at the time, I said he could... Effortlessly switched from reggae to soul and from R&B to rock, drawing on past traditions, the show often felt like a classic soul review, while connecting with contemporary trends. Then I went on to say, as of Bruno himself, he had an unusual knack of combining sunny wholesomeness. There was more than a touch of Donny Osmond about it, particularly in the dental department, with an unblinking sexual directness such that even the ruder lyrics still somehow sounded clean. And then towards the end of my review, I commented that lyrics such as You Can Count On Me Like One, Two, Three, are hardly likely to be remembered as enduring classics. Well, listeners, I have just completed two weeks of playing the dame in the Nairs Brapanto. And for 10 shows, I have had to listen to two of the other characters duetting on Bruno Mars's number 78 of the chart, Smash. You can count on me like one, two, three. And for most of the time that I've been off stage, that bloody song has been buzzing around my brain to such an extent that it's almost put me off Bruno Mars completely. Honestly, I've had three weeks of earworming. You can count on me like one, two, three. However, we are here to talk about 24K Magic, a song completely passed me by in 2017, as it almost completely tuned out of chart pop. In fact, I only discovered it last year when I realised I needed more than uptown funk in the Bruno Mars section of my digital crates. So I did a deep dive into all of his other hits, and I came away clutching brand new downloaded copies of Locked Out of Heaven, and this one as my personal top two Bruno Mars dance-friendly hit picks. And yeah, it does obviously go down very well indeed on my dance floor, and so it should. It's not a million miles away from Uptown funk, even though that was two years previously. I think maybe there's more of an 80s soul funk flavour to it. The references that I got, and love Come Down, good shout, but the references I got are bits of the Gap Band, Kill Them The Gang, Patrice Russian, And it's in a style which is still being done today. So Lizzo, Dua Lipa, Young Cook have all riffed on this kind of style, this set of influences, this kind of BPM tempo like most things that Bruno Mars does. It's got a strong retro vibe. That's no bad thing. I definitely prefer this than the critically acclaimed stuff he went on to do with Anderson .Paak, who I love, as Silk Sonic. Silk Sonic should, in theory, press every single one of my buttons, but in reality, it rather washes over me. After Uptown Funk... 24K Magic is my second favourite Bruno Mars single.
1: Have you seen the video of him doing an Elvis impersonation when he was a small child? No. Ah, you need to find it. He was only like five or six, and he was on like in a local American news programme, you know, because, oh, look, there's this little child that could do this amazing Elvis impression and stuff. It's quite sweet, bless him. So he was obviously out from a very young age.
0: He has interesting lineage because he was born in Hawaii and he is part Puerto Rican and part from the Philippines. I first came across him when I was working in Manila over the summer of 2010. And I think Just the Way You Are was just breaking at the time. And it was everywhere in Manila because Manila was claiming Bruno Mars as as one of his own.
1: How do we feel about that song where he talks about today I'm not going to do anything, I'm just going to put my hand down my pants?
0: Is that the lazy
1: song? The lazy song, yeah.
0: Oh, I just thought it meant he was staying in bed all day.
1: Well, he might, but it's always given me the ick, that song a little bit. It's just like, oh, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think part of that show that I saw in 2011 or whatever it was, parts of that show gave me the ick at the time. It's like, ooh, that's a bit off. But he kind of got away with it because he's all sunny and smiley and cute. Right then, let's do some voting. Nick, I will start with you, please.
1: Lovely. I would like to give my minus one point, please, to the 2000s for Cascadas Truly Madly Deeply. Truly Madly Deeply Terrible, we could call it, couldn't we? Uh, In the Mezzo, oh, that's a tricky one. I would like to put um, Lav Nakinud, What Would I Be? And I will also put Breathe by The Prodigy, please. I'll give one point to the 2010s, Bruno Mars, 24-carat magic. Very nice. Two points to Erasure the 1980s, sometimes I was surprised about because I assumed that that would win. But I love Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Absolutely love it. So three points for the 70s.
0: Wow. We are very much on the same page this time, Nick. Tough in that I think all six of these songs have some degree of merit. Don't remotely hate any of them. I'm going to give my minus one to the prodigy, that's the one I would least enjoy hearing again. My Met zone, like Nick Valdunican, and I'm going to put Cascada in the Met zone. And then my top three is exactly the same as yours, Nick. One point to Bruno Mars, two points to Erasure. And I thought Erasure were going to get the three, but it has to be three points to Julie Covington.
2: And don't cry for me, Argentina. Trev. Wow. Um On any other day, had Cascada not turned up, my least favourite would have been Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. And Cascada has saved me from that argument. In third place, Prodigy. I hope we see the Prodigy again, because I think they've done so many very, very good songs. Bruno Mars in second place, who I expect we will see again as well. Uh, And I think he's always in with a good shout. But really, by an absolute... Fast margin, Erasure is my favourite. I mean, by leagues on this one. I can't believe it's not your favourite, both of you. I will go as, as far as to say that you are both incorrect.
0: So, based on our votes, firmly in last position is Cascada. Then, dead equal in the Met zone, we've got Valdunican and the Prodigy. Joint second position, erasure and Bruno Mars and in poll position because Nick and I both gave it first place is Julie Tovington although in fact you know if we're looking for a consensus pick then the Bruno Mars is the only one that all three of us gave positive votes to but them's the breaks it's over to you now listeners Please specify your first, second, and third favourite songs in descending order of preference, plus your most bad and hated. Ways of voting. Subscribe to our Patreon, patreon.com forward slash whichdecade tops. You can leave comments there. Plus, you get extra goodies and occasional bonus episodes and bonus bits of content. And you get a chance to guest on the results bulletin, should you so wish. But you can also leave your votes via X at whichdecade tops, Facebook. Search for the name of the podcast, Gmail, which decade is tops at gmail.com. And you have until 6 p.m. UK time on Tuesday, the 13th of February, to make your decision. Just remains for me to give you the answer to the question that I set you at the beginning of this episode. Which 2023 hit did all three of us put in our top 10 of the year? The answer is vampire. By Olivia Rodrigo, the only song on which we had total consensus, and deservedly so. Right, hopefully we'll be back a bit sooner than we have been for the past couple of episodes. Until then, bye from Nick. Goodbye. Bye from Trev. Hello bye Which decade is Tops for Pops?